you invited me here, so that's why I'm here. Um, it's it's uh, not 100% my fault. It's your fault too. Uh, it's it's great to be here. I, I said last night that, um, uh, and it was it was great to be um, to show that there's lots of connections between Patricia Pendergrass and and the Schulz and and Elber. Um, lots of great relationships. I I yeah. I, I last night I said I, I'm not sure if I'm a Southerner or not because I was born in Virginia and then married a Memphian. Um, but then I, I, I talked with uh, an individual who said, you know, how when you were born in Virginia, how long did you live there? I said four years. So you're not a Southerner, so um, I've been I've been corrected, and uh, that's okay. Um, anyway, what we've been looking at last night, we looked at the woman at the well. This is John chapter four, and hopefully we'll, we'll put up uh, our new passage in a second. We were looking at the paradigm about how when Jesus meets this woman, he's not just meeting her individually, uh, he's actually giving us a paradigm about how we can go on mission together. And it begins with a call to us individually, but to be a blessing to all nations. And as we're a blessing to all nations, uh, I actually skipped last night to verse 28, which we're going to look at again uh, this morning, which is when, it's, uh, this, this is the phrase, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. It was a natural progression for her to go and, and, and make that move. So it doesn't matter the race or the morality or the gender. You go on mission to the degree that you see what he has done for you. That's what we saw last night about how mission starts with uh, the personal relationship that you have with Jesus. And this morning, we're, we're going to look more specifically at the practical application. So it's more of a meditation uh, uh, shorter as well on if we're a mission as a church, particularly Redeemer Lincoln, uh, Redeemer, Redeemer Lincoln Square, that's my church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in Jackson, what does that actually look like? How does it um, permeate our lives, right? Because the premise was that last night was if God never pulls you in without sending you out again, what does that look like for us? And so I'm going to look at just um, both on a macro and on a micro level what that, what that might actually mean. So to figure that out, we're going to go to the second half of John chapter 4. So we're going to look at verses 27 through 43. I'm not sure we have that on. No, okay, we don't have it. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, this is after the woman's at the well. She goes off. She tells other people. And Jesus now is talking to his disciples. So this is verse 27 through 43 of John chapter 4. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do, you, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone else have brought him food? Uh, and then Jesus continued, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and, there, and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crops for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and other reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. 
And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to this woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, it's Saturday morning. I, I, uh, I pray that we will be able to focus momentarily on this word uh, to not just um, get a, an interesting thought, not just to um, have our minds pricked, but have our hearts moved, Father, to see um, how you are moving in this world, how you're turning all individuals, um, Father, into folks that say, come and see. I pray that you will move that into our own lives this morning as we see our friends, our missionary um, uh, individuals that have gone and done this. Help us to partner with and understand more and make this part of who we are as well. We praise in your name. Amen. Okay. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but the latest polls, if you, if you look at the Pew study, in general, the, most of the world's actually getting more religious. And uh, this is a narrative that uh, most Americans are unfamiliar with because we're, we, we're so American-centric. Uh, we, we know America is actually getting less religious, but most of the world is getting more religious. And if you talk to the Pew study is polling uh, the, these folks who are calling themselves nuns, and uh, uh, those are folks who are not religiously affiliated at all. They call themselves nuns. Um, if you talk to them, 80% of them actually say they're, st they're still spiritual. Which is actually really interesting. Most of the people who are saying, I'm not actually religious, they actually do say they're spiritual. And what that means then is they um, do like the idea of the supernatural still. They do like the idea of, of a transcendent or a God um, supernatural kind of power. They just don't like the, the concept of religion. They don't like the idea of the church. And so when you talk to them, you talk to a lot, they'll say, I actually like Christian morals. I actually like the, the person of Jesus. I just don't like the church, and I don't like the believers of the church, is when you, get to, when you talk to folks. And, and what that means is spirituality is increasing, but the, the desire for spiritual communities in the church is actually decreasing. And I think one of the things you have to ask yourself as the church, uh, Redeemer Prez, is you have to ask yourself, what do we have to offer people who don't actually want what you have? It's, and, and I think that, that's the practical, best way to put this question. Because if we go one step further, if you try to tell somebody today that they're wrong, that um, to, you, know, to, you, know, you should leave your belief system, because I, I actually believe that even if you don't believe in anything, that's still a belief system. You're still hoping and trusting on that. If you're asking them to convert to become a Christian, they actually get mad at you. This is in New York, but I think this is actually American-wide. That they will say you're intolerant, you're wrong to ask me to change because how dare you, sir? You know, how dare you actually go ahead and do that? And they say it's fine for you. If you want to believe in Christianity, that's fine. But you don't, don't, don't push your values and your morals on me. Uh, I, I don't know. This, the phrase that is uttered at me maybe on a weekly basis is, hey, you do you. Hey, you do you. It's okay for if you do you. You know, I'll do me. You do you is sort of the modus operandi of how um, we do life now. Um, and so what it ends up saying is, is like, hey, it's fine for you to be that way, just don't push it on us. Now the irony with that statement, and I, I have to point this out, is whenever, whenever somebody says, you believe what you want, just don't tell other people, the deep irony is that that statement is a truth claim statement that they want to convert you to as well. And I always have to point this out. When I, I used to do this with college students. Um, they'd always say, you know what, there's no absolutes. I go, except for that one, right? Because when you say there's no absolutes, that you just gave me an absolute. The absolute is that there is no absolute. When you say, hey, you can't convert people, what you're doing in that statement is you're asking me to convert to the view that I shouldn't convert people. 
Why do I point that out? Because you can't open your mouth and say any kind of statement in the public square without you actually wanting other people to come alongside to your view. And so when I go to folks and say, yeah, I'm actually a Christian, I would like you to actually change your view. But when you say, I'm not, I, you know, you do you, you actually want me to hold your view of you do you. And so I say, can you just agree that we're both actually trying to convert each other here? Because I think that's the bigger problem, is you think I'm trying to convert you, but you don't see that you're trying to convert me. And, that's, and, and um, I find that very ironic. And I, I point that out because this passage, Jesus is making a statement over and over and over again. And you have to ask yourself, we all have to ask, is this actually true? Or, and, and, and if it's true, then what does it mean to how we actually live out and how do we, it, does it explain reality better than the other views out there? So I, I actually, um, in New York a lot, I have to sit down with people and say, hey, I'm definitely giving you a truth claim that I think is right, but let's, can we put it on the same basis of the fact that there's other truth claims that you're saying that you think you're right, and can we compare and contrast? Which one explains reality better? Which one actually um, will be the kindest and most loving to all of humanity? And Jesus, in verse 35, he, his statements are about a desire and a purpose of harvesting. That's the sort of image that last night we talked about water and we were trying to get our minds into what, you know, why could water be living in our lives. Tonight, and tonight, today, we need to look at this motif about harvesting because he changes her, she goes off and changes other people's lives, but he's actually chastising the disciples in this passage because they don't have the same heart that he does. And so he calls this harvesting, and until you know the joy of harvesting, you don't know what it means to be a Christian. That's uh, this morning's premise. Because this passage won't let us remove the mandate of mission from what it actually means to be a Christian. So you can actually like the morals of Christianity, you can like the person of Jesus, but if you don't have this concept of harvesting, like the disciples, disciples were with Jesus every single day, and he's like, you don't get it. This woman gets it more than you actually get it. Um, and so let's jump right in. The concept we're going to look at is harvesting, and we're going, to look, we're going to break it down in three ways. The mandate to harvest, the motive to harvest, and the method to harvesting. And we're going to go much faster tonight, this morning. The mandate, the motive, and the method. So first, the mandate. And this is verse 27. We said last night, Jesus challenges um, the, um, the woman, but she goes, and now he's challenging the disciples because he's like, the, he, he sees them saying, wait, wh what are you doing here? The, word was mar the one word is marveled, but the, in, the gr in the Greek, it's a lot more complex. And marveled, we always just think, oh, what are you doing? But it, it was a lot more, um, there was a lot more animosity coming from the disciples. Because, again, you remember, he's a rabbi, she's a morally problematic individual, and they're saying those two things don't go together. And he's saying, you don't actually get it. That to harvest, this is the mission I've actually come to do. So what's harvesting? Two things. You need, to have a know, you need to know your need, and you need to know the hope. It, to have a harvest in, in Jesus' mind is there has to be a need and a hope. This is the core of Christianity. So the gospel is more than something that you have to do. It's, it's actually what's been done for you. So it's not just something that is achieved, it's received. And this goes into the concept of good news, which... Uh, I'm probably this, in this space, you always hear this word gospel thrown around, and, you know, the gospel, the gospel, which I, sometimes when you use that term too much, it loses sort of its power. I have to always do the translation in my head. When I hear faith, I translate it to, tr it means trust. When I hear the word gospel, I actually have to translate it to, it, the literal term for it is good news. But why, why is it packaged in that phrase, good news? Because news is reportage. It means it's something 
that you have to get for it to be good in your life. See, if it was mandates, if it was rules, if gospel meant rules, that would be a different thing. But gospel literally means news. That has to, and therefore you have to receive it and not achieve it. News is, is information, at least. Right when uh, in Afghanistan, in, in um, the Middle East, right when U.S. forces are trying to, to figure out what to do, they need news. They need the reportage of what's going on or else they're at a disadvantage. Um, if sports... You know, uh, the, I actually am I'm ter I, I actually am pretty good at some sports and terrible at most. Um, the reason why I'm terrible at most is that for tennis, uh, uh, my wife was really good at, at tennis, and so she's like, let's go play tennis, and I would try a couple times, and I'm like, I'm not good at this, so I'm not going to try, because um, it's going to take too much time, because it takes a lot of effort. You, need, you can't go off and play sports or know the plays or know how to do things unless there's actually practice there, but there's a kind of information that you need to do that. My wife's from Memphis. And don't, get t don't start talking to her about barbecue because, you know, there's Texas barbecue, which is not barbecue in her mind because it's only pork barbecue because it's Memphis barbecue. But then there's a whole kind of fight about is it Corky's or Rendezvous or Central? Like what kind of, I mean, when we talk about barbecue, what kind of Memphis barbecue are we talking about? At the end of the day, it's the information to be able to make a decision. You can't change. I can't change. Nobody changes in this room without at least starting with the information, which is news. And so the, good, the idea of good news, by definition, means there's people out there who don't have the good news. And they need it because actually, there's, a, there's an ignorance of that knowledge. And for them to go from weakness to strength, for them to go from information um, not, you know, deficit to information uh, you know, received, they need this good news in their life. Um, and there's a kind of news that isn't just good, it's... it's, it's it's not just good, it's not just great, it's, it's needed. Um, I, I made up some phrases. The, the, the news, yes, I will marry you. If somebody's, you, you want to hear that news. That's not just news that's going to be, oh, that's interesting news. If you hear, yes, I want to marry you, that's, gonna, that's a life-changing amount of news. Um, the cancer is in remission. That phrase is not just, oh, that's an, that's an interesting idea. No, that's, that's a life-changing phrase. The cancer is in remission. So, um, it's the same thing here, that you can't hide information on certain... There's a kind of information out there that if you hide it, it's actually wrong. Because the, because the information, with, with, if you don't actually give it, it's, it's actually a lack of caring for folks who don't get it. So if you have, in other words, if you have news that could change the world, not telling people about it is actually wrong. That's the mandate of harvesting that I think Jesus is trying to get at. He, he's talking to these disciples who are like, Wait, why are you talking to those people over there? Why are you talking to her? And he's like, you don't understand that if this is real. If what I've come and what I'm doing and what I, and what I will do is going to change the world, this is not something that just those people over there get it and those people over there don't get it. And this is why when people say, you know, you can believe whatever you want to believe, just don't try to convert folks. The assumption behind that is the news that I have uh, um, is actually not going to apply to everybody. It might apply to you over here, but don't, you know, don't apply it over there. That, that's not your cancer is in remission news. That's not, uh, yes, I want to marry you news. That's, that's um, you know, stuff that doesn't actually matter. And that, there's a huge assumption there. So let me put it this way. If the average person in America thinks racism is wrong, I don't think people would say, people don't say this phrase, personally I think racism is wrong. People don't say, you know, um, I think racism makes you unhappy, I don't think it's a good thing. See, that, that, that's, I don't think most folks, most Americans actually do that. Most people would say, no, it's wrong for everybody. And if it's wrong for everybody, then you actually want other people to get that and understand that truth in and of itself. Racism is wrong, period, end stop, full stop. 
uh, you don't you don't just say, well, let's have a conversation about it. So if you're talking about real truth uh, and real moral truth, you try to convert people to that. And if you're going to do that, then you can't be upset then when Christians actually say, I have something that's not just something that I need to own privately. This is something that needs to go out to all other individuals. Right? If there's a truth, any kind of truth out there, has, there has to be a harvesting and a mandate. And I would hope that um, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, if you're sitting here and you've never opened your mouth about what you believe, I hate to say this, but I think you need a question, do you really believe it? That's a harsh thing to say on a Saturday morning, but if you've never opened your mouth about something that is on this kind of level of news, do you really believe it? I would hope that you didn't get into Christianity just because it's exciting, which it is. I hope you didn't get into Christianity just because it's relevant, which it is every day. I hope you didn't get into Christianity just because it's dynamic and transforming, because it is. And I hope you didn't get into Christianity, or at least, you know, Redeemer Press here, because of the community, because there is great community here. But th those, are, those are great aspects of Christianity. I hope, though, you got into Christianity because it's true. But that has to be the basis for it. Because it um, and if it's, true for, if it's true, period, then it's our mission to let other people know. I don't think we have a choice. The um, uh, waffles, if, there, if those waffles were poisonous, you would be wrong if you had that information not to tell everybody else that those waffles are poisonous. Because right? it's, it's a life-transforming kind of information. Uh, another way I, I've, I've seen some folks um, articulate this is, if you have the cure for cancer, right, and you just say, you know what, do I tell other people about this cure for cancer? Do I show folks that? It would, I would think you're, you're actually morally wrong to withhold the cure from cancer from other individuals. So it's on that kind of level. That it, and therefore, this is a mandate. And I know Christians get a bad rap for actually holding this view, but I, I think I've just shown you that everybody holds a view of their news that they're trying to get other individuals to get, and I think this is ours. That the harvest is real, there's people out there that need to hear it, and are we going to actually tell them? So, mandate, number one. Number two, motive. The motive for harvesting. One of the critiques I get in New York is well, the reason why we shouldn't do this is because you can't tell other people good news without you feeling superior because you have the information and they're the inferior ones and so I'm going to tell them about it. So a lot of folks actually don't go on mission because they don't know how to do it without the power differential. That they think that there's some level of, well, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to tell you about it. Um, and so they don't go on and do it. Which, by the way, I get that critique. But just because people have done it poorly in the past doesn't mean that that, can, that is going to be our motive or should be our motive. It shouldn't be. Right? That's problematic. Because so, if people actually say, well, I guess you know, I'm a Christian, but I, you know, I don't, who am I to tell other people that truth? You know, who, who, it looks humble on the surface, but actually um, you, can't get a, you can't get away from if this truth is real, then it needs to be expressed to other individuals. So um, what do we do then? Well, go back to the woman at the well. What was her motivation? Was she, as soon as she had information, did she go, well, I'm superior and I have the information now. I'm going to tell everybody else uh, because they're the inferior ones. I don't think so. When she goes and runs and tells everybody who she sees, there's two aspects of her statement. One is, she says, I'm going to tell, there's a man who told me everything I ever did, one. And then two, there's a man out there who can tell you who you are as well. Right? Because when she says, he, I think he's the Christ. So there's two aspects of it. He told me everything that I ever did, A, and then B, by the way, I think he can tell you who you are um, because he's the Christ, which is, so in some ways there's a bad news component and a good news component to this, good, to this news that she gives. 
has two parts of a talk. When she says, I, he told me everything I ever did, that, that means you're worse than you, I mean, let me tell you all, I mean, she had to reveal all the bad parts about how she had multiple husbands and what that looked like. And at the same time, she goes, well, he's the Christ. So he told me, uh, you know, he can tell you who you are too. And what's that? He so loved you. He so cared about you. He actually stayed in this relationship for me. And that's the good news is that she is loved and saved and made better because of the bad news of her seeking the wrong wells, the wrong sources of water. And so what was her motivation? Superiority? I, I, don't, I, I don't buy it. She was morally inferior in every way to everybody else. There's no way, even if she tried to be superior, people would not even look at her that way because they would have been like, no, you're, be you're beneath me. So what was her grounds? Her grounds was, I have to tell you because this news is a life-transforming um, news that changed me and can change you as well. So here's the, here's the point. Jesus doesn't actually, if you look through this text, this John 4 text, Jesus doesn't actually command her to go. Sometimes he tells people that, but in here, he doesn't do it. She just does it on her own. That she just goes and tells folks, not out of superiority, but out of the pure love and beauty of what he did for her. And, I, and I, I think that has to be our motivation. The motivation power behind the good news has to be the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done. And to the degree that you see that you are a beauty to him, will you want to express that beauty to other individuals? And how do you get that? When you see his commitment to you despite your flaws, despite your issues, despite all the junk that's in there, and we tried to touch on that last night about shame, when you see that he still moved towards you and said, you know what, that's where I want, I want that no matter what, that transforming heart allows you then to move out and tell other people and, and reveal that beauty to other folks. And I wrote down here, because so, there's something about beauty that if it's beautiful to you, you have to tell other folks. I didn't write this here, but there's a guy in my church who loves uh, motorcycles. And you know what? You can't get five minutes just talking to him without him starting to talk about motorcycles. Because it's a beauty to him. And he can't help want you to know the beauty about motorcycles. I could care less about motorcycles. But he thinks you don't understand. Unless you get these motorcycles, look at the chrome and look at this, the five, CC. I don't even know what I'm talking about. But he, he knows motorcycles and wants you to know them too. And he wants you to see how beautiful they, they are. Why is that? Because it's welling up inside of him to say, you need to see this as well. And I, if we understand that, you know, about motorcycles or food, food is a big deal in New York City. Everybody's a foodie. You have the cupcake rage, and then there's the burger rage. And, um, and, and, and so there's all these kind of rages where everybody's just trying to find the best of it. And, and you want to express it, and you tell other people about it. If that's true with all these other things, why is it not true about our faith? How do we not see that this needs to be a beauty for us as well, that the gospel is free and complete and can change your heart if you let it, but it has to be a beauty? And so I, I think the practical step that I'm trying to say here for Redeemer Prez is that we will go on mission to the degree that this is actually a beauty in your own life and in your own heart. Um, if Jesus is who he says he is, then for you to keep your particular faith private is not just, it's not courteous, it's actually cruel. And what I worry about for a lot of Christians is I think we're content. We're content in our own lives. We're trying to find our own relationships. You don't know non-Christians. You're not befriending people across racial and political and moral and gender barriers. And you're not doing what Jesus did. Jesus purposely picks the Samaritan woman because she's the, more, the opposite in every way. Because he's saying that's exactly what would happen to you if you have this in your life. If the natural disposition of one meeting the real Jesus is then to go into to others, we need to ask ourselves, are we actually going? 
What ways in our lives are we actually going, and, and what's our motive? Right? Because it's wrong if the motive is like, I'm superior and you're inferior. That's wrong, I agree. But that's not her motive, and that shouldn't be ours. It should be beauty. So, um, last point. If you have uh, the mandate, which is uh, you, we, you go if, if it's real, and you have the motive, the motive means to be beauty and nothing else. Then lastly, what's the method? And I, I said this before, that um, we don't want to alienate and use hostile methods. A lot of people, have, there's, you've seen probably terrible forms of harvesting, and I'm not advocating for those at all. But what you see in this passage is you see Jesus has taken this woman, and if I could just be really basic about this, is he makes her her friend. He makes her his friend is what he does. He sits with her, he asks her questions, he engages her on her own terms, and he befriends her. And I think Jesus Christ Ultimately, the mission goes out as individuals, but as a church in the space of radical friendship. And we need, to unparse, we need to parse that, what I mean by friendship. Because he gets by sex biased here, he gets by race biased, he gets by um, the condemnation of, of the disciples because he radically befriends her. And as, I think we'll be as good at harvesting, we'll be as good at mission as we are at relationships. And I'll, I'll put it this way. A friend is somebody, a real friend is somebody who gives it, that individual what they need. And that's all harvesting is. So let's break it down. That means you're not befriend. Here's the first type of friends. You don't become friends with somebody because you have, uh, uh, you don't get into that relationship just to change them. That's not a real friend. A friend is a, bef- is a friend because you're in it for that individual, not as a means to an end, but as an end in and of itself. That's the first step. And, and by the way, um, secular individuals can read right through uh, Christians who are either befriending them because they're an end in of itself or because you have an ulterior motive. So first step is you don't change somebody. You don't love somebody to change them. You, you, that's, not, that's not how it works. You have to love somebody as an end in of itself. And therefore, harvesting is simply coming to individuals and saying, let's be friends. And that's, that, that's really, that sounds thin. Let's, let's break that down. What's a real friendship? At least intentionality. It's at least proximity. It's at least time. It's at least commonality. And it's at least vulnerability. I'll, go, I'll break those down fast. Intentionality. Um, a lot of my college students, when I was working with them, but even New Yorkers, they're not, we're not intentional. I'll see you when I see you. Hey, good to see you. See you. Whatever. That's not intentional. Intentionality says, what are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing next week? Can we meet up? Intentionality. One. Okay. But what does that look like? Proximity. You have to put yourself in the space of individuals. What's the difference? Well, you know what's going on with social media? Is you're not putting yourself in proximity. Proximity is physicality. You know most communication happens with body language? You th- that's what's so fascinating about texting, is you text la 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 la, and social media is 80% confusion because you think you know what the person is really saying, but you really don't, and everybody's just mad at each other because they can't actually see what they're really being said. So you need to be, if you're going to be real friends with people, I'm not talking virtual, you have to sit with people in physical presence. Um, and and I, so I don't mean social media. Secondly, time. Uh, I saw this with a lot of students. They, they would actually be in physical space with each other like this, and here they'd all be, they'd all be on their phones like this. That, so they're actually in proximity, but they're not actually spending time because they're, they're spending time with something else, doing something else. So proximity, time, commonality. This is Lewis. has to be about something. Uh, he says it can be mice or dominoes, but it needs to be about, there has to be something that you hold in common. 
And then uh, fourthly, vulnerability is sort of the secret sauce. Uh, this is where there's a sharing of your life struggles and your hardships and your desires and your wants. And uh, when you get involved in that level, that's what Jesus does. And I'll walk it through. Um, he put himself in proximity with her when nobody else would. He spent time with her. They talked about things in common, right? They talked about water in the well. They talked about this theological concept of worship and is this, you know, is the Samaritan view the right way or is the Jewish view the right way? Uh, he was vulnerable as they shared both Jesus' purpose and mission as well as her roots of shame and her hopes and needs and issues. Right? On every single level, he walks through and does that. And so let me try to close in this way. Many of you in this room, you call yourselves Christians, and yet Jesus says the same thing to you that he says to the disciples in verse 32, which is, I have food that you know not of. And, I, and you know, on one level, I'm not trying to berate you or be mad at you, because he does, you know, Jesus does the same thing to his best friends. He says, you don't quite understand, because I think a lot of us are dying because we don't have mission. And we don't have mission because our mission if you want to use the small M word of that, is just to make it through the life circumstances that are pounding on our lives. Those life circumstances, I mean, some of you here, you're, just trying, you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, you're trying to make enough money so that you can pay next month's rent, keep your lifestyle at a certain level. Some of you here, you might, you might be a, a single mom just trying to pay the bills. And that's the, la the last thing that you think you need to hear is this concept of going over there for other individuals. But I believe that your and my souls are shriveling because we are built for something much more noble than just our current life circumstances. That, there's, that, uh, that yes, life is hard, and yes, we, we need our immediate needs help to add. But if you look at this woman, she was, you know, what, what was going on here? She had huge physical needs. She needed water. She needed relationship. She was out on every single level. But what ends up happening is, he is so committed to her, and not just her physical needs, but her spiritual needs, that he actually goes to her and talks to her and, and moves in her life. So I think we need to admit that we don't care for the women at the wells around our lives because we're more concerned about getting sources of water from other spaces. This is last night. And, that, and I think that we, we draw on, we, we're not drawn on the living water that we actually have. It reminds me of um, the missionary uh, Jim Elliott, who was married to Elizabeth Elliot, who went into Ecuador with, I think it was him and four other missionaries. And they were trying to um, meet a very primitive tribe and contact them and give them the Bible in their own language. And they didn't know that the tribe was going to receive them. They didn't want to be heavy-handed. They had no idea how it would affect them. I mean, no idea how effective they were going to be. But they felt called to go into the jungle to these folks. And the night before they went, they sang a song. I want to read the lyrics of that song. He, they, they, this is what they sang. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. They had such security in that. And the next day, they were all speared to death by this tribe. And I, I, to be honest, when I read that, those lyrics that they sang, you're going to keep me safe. You, you know, you're, we're going to rest in thee. In thy name you go. And then I get speared to death. It's like, wait a second. How do I know that I'm not going to get slaughtered? And maybe not by physical spears, but by spiritual or emotional spears. What, what if, I, if I go do this and other people come after me and attack me? How do I know that's not going to happen? And the answer is you don't. It actually might happen. It, it happened to Janelle. It could happen to you. So how do we know we'll be in safekeeping? And this is where folks, and we don't have time to do this, but 
Death is coming to everybody in this room. It's the one thing, and it's already to get morbid Saturday morning. But you have, to, you have to come to terms with that because what out there is death not going to take away from us? Because saying death is just random, which is what New Yorkers always say, or saying that it's just karma, or saying that it's just you know, not real, that's not actually really helpful when it actually comes to you. But Christianity says Jesus enters into death, cosmic death in distance from God, and has gone through it and came out on the other end with resurrection. And now that means physical death for you and I isn't real death. There was a, um, I, I, this, I didn't write this either, but it's in the back of my head. There was a, I think his name was Yardhouse, his famous um, uh, uh, Christian pastor. And his wife uh, died, and he was left with just himself and his daughter. And he's standing on the sidewalk, and he hasn't figured out how to talk to his daughter well about, you know, death and stuff. And uh, a, a big truck comes rolling by, and um, it, you know, uh, he picks up his, his daughter, freaks out, and gets scared, jumps into his arms. He puts her down, and he, he actually immediately realizes how to talk to her. And he says this, hey, did that um, truck hit you? And she goes, no. So, well, no, I actually saw something from that truck hit you. And she goes, well, Daddy, it was just the shadow of the truck. The shadow of the truck hit me, but not the real truck. And, she, and he goes, exactly, the shadow hit you, but not the real truck, which means the shadow of death hits your mom, but not real death, because Jesus Christ took real death on the cross, so that you and I, when we hit death, it's just entrance into new life. And if you really knew that and believed that and had that and sat in that, sat in that, then I think what ends up happening is you don't just have that answer for your life in the future, you can sit in that space now. And that means if the worst thing in life is death and the worst thing all that can do is bring you closer to the one who loved you, then nothing in this life can fully be ruined and we can risk and we can love and we don't have to worry about being cut off. That means the gospel changed heart can be fortified against the tyranny of death and the tyranny of any kind of hurt or loss or sadness that's out there. Because the worst thing in life is really the entrance into the best thing in life and I think the greatest is still to come. So what does that mean for us for mission? The church will go on mission and use this paradigm of friendship as the avenue of change into this neighborhood, into the lives of others to the degree we actually can rest in that space. And I guess I want us to ask to, uh, for the rest of the, the day as you go out and you serve and you care, ask yourself, what's my mandate to go? What's my motive? Is it superiority or is it out of beauty? And then what is then, out of, after all that, what's the method? And the method is relationships. And you can have security and trust and knowledge that you can go and do this because death has been taken from us. Real death. Now we have just life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, it starts here. It starts where God changes you, changes us, like the woman at the well, inwardly, so then we can move out outwardly. And I, I just pray for everybody in this room, do we have a sense of mission? Some of us here are missionaries, and we do. But I pray that we will remind ourselves Sometimes we can get lost even in, in the day-to-day -day, uh, actions. I pray that you will remind us what you have done. You were the first one to go on mission. And the mission was to us. And you've saved us and loved us and cared for us through your cross and resurrection. I pray that that would move us uh, out into the world with security. With Everybody has different giftings. We can do it in different ways. But the mandate's still there. It's to go and to harvest. And I pray that we'll do that uh, now and forever. In your name, amen.